Okay, we are in, in Acts chapter 14, just finishing up Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and we're going to be reading from verse 24. When they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they spoke the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that, that they had accomplished. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Okay, so they finished this first missionary journey. Remember, they had been terribly beaten up and kicked around on this journey as well. Uh, Paul had, <clears throat> had, undergo- <clears throat> excuse me, had undergone a stoning during the, this, this missionary journey. And now they're going back to their home church and they have the first missionary meeting. And they report to the church all the great things that God had, had done. And it says, when they arrived, they gathered the church together. So you see that it was a, it was a calling together of this group of people. And it says that, that uh, <clears throat> they began to report all things that God had done with them <clears throat> and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they say what, the things that God had done with them and how He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God did it with them and God opened the door. It was not as if they did anything in and of themselves. It was all God did it with them. God had opened the door. And you know, you think about this. You say, couldn't they have done this without the hardship? Couldn't they have done this without having been dragged out, having been stoned, having been chased from one city to another? Couldn't God have made it a little bit easier for them? Sure, God could have done anything, right? God could have, could have put you know, a, a force field around them and all the stones just bounced off and they just stood there smiling. God could have done that, but He didn't. He let the stones hit them, so much so that Paul was presumed to be dead and he was dragged out of the city. You say, well, why? Why didn't you just protect them physically? And I don't know all the answers to that, but I will, I will offer something that I've seen in my own life and in the lives of others. You know, sometimes people get, get all bent out of shape when they see some 18 or 19-year-old professional basketball player get really proud. Have you noticed that? And they just get really cocky and, and they begin to get really ugly in their attitudes. It doesn't surprise me. You know, I, I'm over 18, and if I get just a little bit of praise and accolades, which is about a millionth or a billionth of the praise and accolades of some professional basketball player, my heart could start, starts getting really ugly. You say, well, why? I don't know why. I don't know why. And if, if things start going really well for me, 
at work day after day after day. We get a lot of big grants and a lot of big publications. I can find myself getting less compassionate, more judgmental toward others, and basically more ugly. And then when my grants start to dry up and I'm worried how I'm going to pay the payroll of all the people working for me, and things aren't going so well, and somebody has found some error with something that I've published, and I get to be a much nicer person. This is something that happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you or if you've ever experienced this. And this is why when I see this in the life of an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old basketball player, I understand. In fact, I'm amazed that they're as good as they are with the praise and the accolades that they get. And then on top of that, the money. That's something I've never had to really worry about. I mean, if you'd pile that on me, I'd be a real mess. But they, they get these huge contracts. You know, they do some Burger King commercial and they get $25 million. And they stop being attractive because they become full of themselves. And it's, it's, it's frustrating to watch that. But I see that same tendency in myself. This is what amazes me about this man, Jesus Christ. Utterly amazing. That Jesus could walk the way He did in humility, in kindness, in compassion, and yet He was raising the dead. He was casting out demons. They would have... They would have evening sessions where the whole town would come in and people would get blessed and, and people would get ministered to. It was just amazing the way He would respond. And this to me witnesses forth that Jesus had to be God come in the flesh. No man could get the praise that He got and still be so compassionate and so kind and so gracious and so loving. Because human beings, when everything goes well for them, become really quite ugly. It says in the book of Proverbs, a, a man is tested by the praise accorded him. Whoa! A man will be tested by the praise accorded him. That's how a man is tested. By the praise that comes at him. Why is that a test? It's a test because how we deal with praise says something about our character. And then when you get beat up and you get thrown out of a city, you get dragged around, you get, you get big welts and bruises all over you coming back to your home church... Imagine what Paul looked like. He had been so pummeled with stones that they thought that, that, he was, that he was presumed to be dead. Can you imagine what he must have looked like? There are a number of seats right up here in the front, so you're, you're welcome to use those. Okay, so he had, he had been confronted with so much of this. This is, this is where he was. 
I don't know why we go through the things that we do in life. I don't know. I don't know. But I know it has something to do with this. When there is suffering, when there is pain, it calls us beyond ourselves. And it causes us to cry out to God and it actually builds in some measure of humility. Maybe this is why they went through something. Maybe this is why they, <clears throat> they were dealing with this. Could this be the reason that they were dealing with this? <clears throat> so he reports to them, this is what had happened and how the door had been opened. Let's move on to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who, believe, who, who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Okay, so, Paul comes back to the Antioch church there's all this excitement. So many people come to know the Lord. He comes back and he reports this. And some people come from Jerusalem and start reporting and start teaching in the Antioch church. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is really amazing. We have to be really careful what we say to people about whether they're saved or not to make judgment calls like this. But they came down, and so you have this church that's Gentiles predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly Gentiles, so they weren't circumcised. Now, you might remember, we've gone through this before. To be a convert to Judaism, there were several levels of conversion. There were God-fearers, people who feared God, like Cornelius and his family. Those were God-fearers. Those were Gentiles, but... They had a respect for the God of Israel, and it categorizes them as God-fearers. Then there were Gentiles of, of the gate. Those would go further. But they weren't full converts because they were not circumcised. Then there were full converts to Judaism. Full converts demanded that the men among those full converts get circumcised. So there were very few Gentiles, Gentile men that became full converts. We can understand why. I mean, for women, it was a little bit easier. A woman could become a full convert to Judaism, and it wasn't, wasn't as traumatic for her. And now, they're saying to the Christians, you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to get saved. This is pretty upsetting. Not only that, to the Greeks... Greek, to the Greeks, circumcision was so repulsive that they had even outlawed it 
in the cities where they ended up having control, even outlawed it for the Jews because it was such a repulsive thing to them. And so, in other words, these Judaizers were coming in and setting the bar so high to come into faith that no man would want to come. And so that you could almost see that this may be a way to keep them out. Because it was upsetting to these Jews to see so many Gentiles coming in. People say to me, how could you, being a Jew, accept the things of Christianity? And I'm like, how could you, not being a Jew, accept the things of Christianity? Because Christianity, if you read the book of Acts, is so Jewish. Everybody was a Jew. For years, it was only Jews. And then finally, there was this little family of Cornelius that came in, and they were God-fearers. And so, first of all, they, they appreciated the things of Judaism. And it wasn't until much later that you started getting then masses of people that were not Jews coming in. So the amazing thing is that people who are not Jews come into the faith. That's the amazing thing. And so they start teaching this. And look, what does the Bible say? What are we taught in the epistles concerning salvation? Turn to Romans chapter 10. And this is the requirement that's needed for salvation. This is what's taught in Romans chapter 10. And Paul made it very clear. Now, Romans had not yet been written, but now we understand what it is. Romans 10, starting from verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So this is what the Bible says. You want to be saved, this is what it says. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. A confession that we believe that Jesus is indeed Lord, and believing in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. The resurrection is absolutely fundamental to Christian faith. The Bible says, this is what the Bible says about salvation. Without confessing that Jesus is Lord, and believing in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we cannot be saved. This is what the Bible says about it. And that's why... It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I give to you as of first importance, the most important thing, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He was raised so vividly, He goes on to say, that He appeared first to Cephas, meaning Peter, and then to the twelve. And then He appeared to James and over 500 brethren at one time. And then He appeared to me as the one untimely born, Paul says. So He gives physical evidence. And He says, you can ask these people. They're still alive. Many of them were still alive when He wrote 1 Corinthians. It was a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection. So the requirements for salvation are that we believe that Jesus is Lord and that He's been risen from the dead and we're willing to confess that He's Lord. That's the requirements. So now they've put upon this group of people, you've got to be circumcised. I mean, think about that. Very comfortable sitting here. But imagine if some guy walked in here and said, okay, you like it here? If you want to stay here and keep coming every Sunday, um, all the men will have to be circumcised. And all the women will have to have something that's, that's as dramatic as that. How many people would come back next week? You go find somewhere else to go. This was very upsetting to them. 
And so it says in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. So there was, it wasn't just a little discussion. It was great dissension and debate. I mean, a lot was going on. Paul and Barnabas were saying, leave these guys alone. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to come under the law of Moses. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. Leave them alone. They believe through faith. God sent the Holy Spirit upon them through faith, not through some act. There's great dissension. Do you want to know something? Do you think Antioch was a church that God wanted to be a church? Or was it something that just arose that God wasn't in favor of? What do you think? you think God wanted Antioch to be a church? It's a very important church, by the way. This was Paul's home church. This was the church that commissioned Paul. The answer is yes. He wanted Antioch to be a church, all right? It was, it was a trick, an, trick question, but the answer is yes. He wanted Antioch to be a church. Well, what's going on? If this church is really of God, how come there's great dissension and debate? I think I'll just go to a church where there's never a conflict, never a problem. That's the church that I'm going to go to. I don't want to be in a church where people disagree. I mean, there's enough disagreement all week without having to go to churches on Sunday where there's disagreement. I think I'll go somewhere else. And you want to know something? With that attitude, you will go, you'll be going from place to place to place to place. Because every church has some debates and some dissensions and some things that go on over doctrine, over ways of ministry. This is normal. This is just like families. I love my wife so much. I really do. But we don't agree all the time. But never have I said, I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. I'll go find someone that I get along better with. There's no way I could ever find anyone who I get along better with. My wife, that she could tolerate me, is a saint. I know that. But you can't just leave in families when there's problems. You understand that. And men who feel like, I'm I'm getting out of here. You know, there's a woman at work, she really understands me. Well, just watch out. Because you'll end up sleeping with that woman, you'll end up divorcing your wife, and you'll end up marrying that next woman, and the same conflicts will arise, only an order of magnitude more. And the marriage will last even less long. And then you'll be on to your third wife. And you think that doesn't happen? I have counseled many, many young men that this has happened to. And I just heard this morning about one young man that I had counseled on his first marriage. And now he's going through his third divorce. So you can't tell me that this doesn't happen or this doesn't happen to good people. He's just as good as you and me. This is real stuff that happens. We can't leave when there's problems. Paul didn't say, I'm out of here. I don't like this church. You know, I started a bunch of churches on my missionary journey. I think I'll go back there. You can't do that and walk uprightly. You stick with it. God will bring solution. And in the end, the whole body of Christ ends up stronger. Dissensions, debates occur in campus Christian groups. Sometimes within Christian groups, leaders end up blowing it. And people say, oh, 
Can't have that. Well, you know, leaders blow it all the time. God raises up new leaders. It'll happen. Things happen, but we can't always run away. And so Paul didn't run away. He was facing this problem. The people in Antioch, it doesn't say we're leaving the church. It doesn't say there was nobody left. It says there was such debate that the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them, probably meaning the Judaizers, so they could go down and deal with this, should go to, up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Okay, so the church agreed, we need some help here. We need a third party. Because we got these folks that came down from Jerusalem, and we know, and we're going to see later on in this chapter, that those folks that came down from Jerusalem that were teaching that everybody had to be circumcised were not issued by the church in Jerusalem. They came of their own accord, and they were teaching things they were never told to go teach. But they didn't say this. They didn't say, we haven't been given this message. They came from Jerusalem bearing a message. But what they decided to do was to go to Jerusalem. It says go up to Jerusalem, even though Syrian Antioch is up here. If you look on a map and Jerusalem down here, Jerusalem was up on a mountain. So everything from Jerusalem was considered to go down from Jerusalem or you go up to Jerusalem. So it says that they're going up to Jerusalem, that they should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So they realized that there was a third party that should get involved here. And they looked for third party help. You say, well, if they're so spiritual, why don't they just go to God? I mean, God is, you know, just, you don't need any help. Just figure it out with God. Everybody get in a big prayer meeting and pray to God. God will speak forth the answer. I mean, this is biblical times, right? Of all times, He should speak forth the answer here. God should speak forth the answer. And then it's done. Why go to Jerusalem and bother the, you, you, the, the church in Jerusalem with this issue? Well, because there was a bunch of apostles in Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas were already apostles. But they wanted to go, it says, to the apostles and the elders. So it wasn't just apostles, it was the eldership that was taking, that was taking the lead now in Jerusalem as well. And they wanted to go and appeal to them. You know, the same thing happens in marriages. Marriages that are open to third-party help do much better. And there's this feeling among the Christian community, like, if anybody knows that we're having trouble in our marriage, they're not going to think well of us. We'll never be trusted with leadership or something. I wouldn't want a leader that has never had any trouble in their marriage because they're not real. They're just, you know, made out of paper mache. I want somebody who's, who's had to duke it out, who knows what life is, who's had teenagers that don't always say, good evening, Father. <laughs> Third-party help is important. You see, this church didn't say, hey, we got Paul for a pastor here. I mean, Paul's one of our missionaries. I mean, this is a big guy. And Barnabas, we can deal with this issue ourselves. No, they looked for third-party help. And churches need to do this. Pastors often will go to other pastors of other churches and say, Hey, you know, I'm struggling with this issue. You ever been through this? This is a good thing to do. When I have questions about the class, I go to Roger. What do you think I ought to do? I don't know how to run 
Sunday school classes. All I know how to do is just they drop me here and I speak and I go home. And so I need to know how do you coordinate this? How do you do this? I need I need input from others who have done this before. Marriages need this kind of input. Shreen and I have been to marriage counselors on several occasions. We really have. And every one of them has said, Shireen's normal. Jim, you're messed up. And I say, then help me. Help me. I really do. And, and you want to know something, men? Let me tell you something. In every case where we have gone to a counselor, I have been the one in the marriage to initiate it. And I'm proud of that. I've been the one to initiate it. I've been the one to recognize that, hey, we've got some troubles here. Let's go and get some help. Because for some reason, Christian men get this idea like they're, they're little gods. And, and uh, um, they don't need to do stuff like this. And then the women are besides themselves in these marriages and saying, we've got to have help. And only when they're on the, you know, on the verge of utter despair will they, will they even go into the office and the guy just sits there and crosses his arms like he's got nothing to deal with. You know, it's her problem. Fix her and I'll be all right. You know, everything will be all right. Just fix her. You know, and, and as soon as a guy comes to me for counsel and he's got his arms crossed in that way, I know he's got a problem. Because he looks just like I do when I'm going through that. That's how I know he has a problem. And so you, they, they went for this third-party counsel. And as they're going, it says, it says in verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church. So the church sent them. The church is looking for help. Passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail, when they were passing both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Okay, so you see, their, their home church, Paul and Barnabas' home church in Antioch, is going through real trouble. There's great dissension and debate with the Judaizers. So they say, we better go to Jerusalem and deal with this. On their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are going into these churches in Phoenicia and Samaria and describing how all these Gentiles got saved on their missionary journey that they had come back from. And how the church in Antioch has all these Gentiles. So you see, in the midst of all this dissension and debate, they're still going into churches and ministering. It didn't kill the life that was in them. You know, they were walking through Phoenicia and Samaria. I am so upset. I've got to go to Jerusalem. just got back from the missionary journey, and now I've got to go over here. And you know, these guys upsetting the church and you know, spitting the whole way and grumbling. They weren't doing that. They were still being used in service to the Lord to minister the grace of God in places where they were. And just because you're having some, some friction in your marriage or friction with your roommate in relationships doesn't mean it should quench your Christian service. And just because a church goes through dissension and debate doesn't mean all programs stop. No, there's still the life there. There's still the life in the family. They're still sitting around the dinner table and eating together. You still do this together. And so the problems in their life the problems that were real enough to have to go and get third-party help did not prevent them from ministering to the Lord. Because if every problem that we came up with prevented us from ministering to the Lord, we would be black holes. 
just sucking in, help me, help me, help me. You know, you know how much trouble I'm going through? Just help me. Help me. If you really care, help me. Help me, help me, help me. Help me. And you can't, you can't do anything with this person. You give something of yourself out and you might be helped. With a black hole, they suck all the light in, everything. Not even a photon gets out of a black hole. That's what makes this is what they call them black hole. No, no light can get out because the gravitational force is so strong. Isn't that amazing? So, so th- people can become like this. That no light of Jesus gets out of them. It's buried within them. Nothing gets out. And I'm sure Mother Teresa had problems. I'm sure she did. But you never hear about her being on the psychiatrist's couch saying, nobody ever does anything for me. I'm always helping other people. No, it's in helping other people you are blessed. You give of yourself in spite of your problems. If you think that, well, when I deal with these issues in my life, then I'll participate. You will never participate. The issues never finish. Did you know when you graduate and you go through the Sally Port, it doesn't like, ah, I am free today. I am free. No problems. Now I can really work and I can join a church and do everything. No, your problems are just starting. You get house payments and car payments and baggage all over. You're starting a new job and they're sending you all over the country and flying you here, flying you there and and you're working with somebody you don't like, and, and, and all these other things. You don't have the, the, the little campus community around you, and all the girls and guys you knew that you would cry with and everything, they're all gone. It never changes, really. And I have heard professors say, well, when I get tenure, you know, then I'll participate more. I'm thinking, you're crazy. At that rate, you're not going to get tenure. But if you get tenure, then what? Okay, well, now I'm an associate professor. When I become a full professor, and then you become a full professor, you feel like, now I'm too old to do it. And, you know, we go through phases in our life, and it's never the perfect phase. We either feel too young or too old. Forever I felt too young to be doing what I was doing. And now so many times I feel too old to be doing what I'm doing. Is there ever a right age? No, they were ministering wherever they were, even though there was all this problems, and probably the Judaizers were getting really upset. Look how happy Paul and Barnabas are. We've got a big meeting coming up. We've got a big deposition coming up in Jerusalem. These guys are just there laughing and joking and telling everybody about all the things that God has done. And this is what you see in the life of a, of, of a believer. They go through problems. They go through trials in their life, and still they're sharing. And there's this joy. And it bothers the unbeliever. It bothers the less spiritual. How could this guy be so happy? He's going through the same thing I'm going through. Because of the life of Jesus, he's allowing the life of Jesus to come out. And it makes life a whole lot more enjoyable. I guarantee you the Judaizers were spitting the whole way to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas were just fine. They were just fine. So they go down in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses.
Okay, so we see who these Judaizers were. They were of the sect of the Pharisees who had become believers. They were so entrenched with these traditions that it was hard for them to break out of it. So they wanted to put these traditions upon other people. Did you know when we straddle ourselves with a lot of unscriptural burdens, we want other people to have to carry these burdens too? You know, the Scriptures are not too demanding on us of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But as Christians, we pick up things. And we get a feeling, maybe through the churches we've been in, because of church bylaws, which are never scriptural commandments in, 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 per se. But we pick up certain habits. And we say, we want others to live by these habits. They were so filled with this, they were burdening others with these same difficulties. We want them to have to go through what we went through. And not only this, you know, they're not eight days old anymore. These are adult males that you're asking to get circumcised. So it's, it's a little bit different issue. When you're eight days old, you know, I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> so if it hurt, it didn't, you know, it's not something I remember. So it's a different issue. But they are putting what's, what, what they feel they have to do. Let me give you one small example. The scriptures say, talk about fasting. And Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, when you give alms. So there's an ex- expectation that, that sometimes people will fast and pray. But it never says, you have to fast on such and such a day, at such and such a time, you have to do this. But you know what happens? When I'm fasting and praying, I kind of want everybody else to be fasting so they can go through what I go through. And then, and then I have this feeling like maybe I ought to teach on fasting so that other people suffer with what I'm suffering. And it doesn't just happen to me because students who are either on a fast or just finished a fast send me email messages that I should teach on fasting. And I said, and I'll respond, are you fasting or have you just finished a fast? Because you see, what we burden ourselves with we often want others to, to feel this pain. That is, and that's why Jesus said, wash your face, anoint your head with oil, and don't let others know you're fasting. That's between you and God. Don't burden somebody else with it. That's between you and God. But this is, this is the core of their problem. And I think another core may have been they were getting upset that all these Gentiles were coming in, so they wanted to set this threshold so high that very few Gentiles would come in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray for these young people that in the name of Jesus Christ, you would so impact their hearts not to just run when problems arise in their lives, in their churches, in their marriages. But, Father, that you would make them stronger individuals as a result. Father, I pray for these young men that they would become good husbands, loving you, and not running out when there's problems that arise. Father, I pray that you would build them up as men who love you and honor you. And, Father, I pray for these young women that in the name of Jesus, you would give them forbearance and consistency, And that they would not lose hope. 
And Father, that You would call them to a place of prayer in their lives. That they would become good wives in Your time after Your own choosing. And Father, that You would cause them to raise children and do the work that You would have for them to do. And to be patient and forbearing. Father, have mercy on them. Father, call them forth to Yourself. And Father, I pray for these young people that You would bring in their lives sexual purity, sexual purity to be set apart for You. Father, that from this day they would commit themselves to live in purity for the day of their marriage. Father, I commit them to You and I thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.